0: Welcome to this special episode of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your co-host Matt Zemek, along with Saka Bali. Ash Barty has stunned the tennis world, stunned the global sports world with her abrupt decision to retire from professional tennis at the age of 25. We are here to talk about this momentous event, uh, not a sad one, Though we will certainly miss Ash Barty's lovely textured tennis, that's for sure. But she's retiring as someone who who said in her initial uh, Instagram uh, announcement that she leaves the sport, quote, proud, feeling proud and fulfilled. So that's a happy moment. It's, this is not an athlete being uh, punished or hounded or haunted into retirement. This is this is a triumph. This, uh, as our friend. Matt Willis said uh, in his uh, great post at The Racket which you should read, you should subscribe to his publication. Uh he said, you know, Barty beat the game and then left. Like and uh I you know <laughs> this is a kind of a trivial thing, a trivial example, but I played uh, an arcade game Sakib. Uh, uh I play I I always loved to play Ms Pac-Man as a kid and Uh, I once played the game. It was on like the high speed. So like you could really race across the board and, and, you know, grab all the ghosts and all the fruit and and all that stuff. I scored 698,700 points in in Ms. Pac-Man. And the game ended like the the computer. I must have cleared like 200, 250 boards. And the game ended before my last ms pac woman uh died so like i beat the game and so just like that is just a metaphor or an image i beat the game and then why would i ever want to play uh ms pac man ever again after you know essentially my, I, I played a game which i never did fully die um there's another famous example Sakib uh you know before we get into our conversation here dick Shap he's, a, he, he's a, a great American sports caster and journalist. Uh, he died about uh, like 10, 15 years ago, but he had a program called the sports reporters where he'd gather prominent American sports journalists every Sunday morning to discuss the weekend sports. So, you know, a, a legendary figure in American sports journalism. And he fondly recounted the moment when he took, the comedian Lenny Bruce to game seven of the 1960 World Series between the Pittsburgh Pirates and the New York Yankees now Lenny Bruce um, you know a, a very caustic foul-mouthed comedian but you know certainly very famous and notable in his time so he went to game seven of the 1960 World Series and for those who don't follow baseball very closely let's just say that Game seven of the 1960 World Series, one of the greatest baseball games ever played. And it's one of only two times in the whole history of the World Series going back to 1903. So nearly 120 years. uh, It's one of only two World Series games that ended in which the World Series itself ended on a home run. Uh, There was that and then there was a 1993 World Series when uh, Toronto beat Philadelphia. A home run was the final play of the World Series. So just to, to bring it this back to Barty and this notion of beating the game and then walking away, uh, Pittsburgh, so Pittsburgh beat New York with, on a home run in the bottom of the ninth. It was the last play of the last game of the World Series. And so Lenny Bruce told Dick Schap after the game was over, well, if this was my first baseball game, it's also going to be my last because I know nothing is ever going to top this. Uh, It really gets to that kind of sentiment with Ash Barty beating the game and then leaving. So Matt Willis over at the racket, I think, put it uh, really well. So, Sakib, uh, we'll get into some specific questions, but let's just start with your general overview and reaction to this amazing and seismic story. Yeah, I think you said it all, right, Uh,
1: beating the game and then – I think anyone who follows tennis, and especially like we do, you know, the weekly pulse and discussions of the game, doing podcasting, doing written work, this is a moment, right? I know you've been working basketball. We spoke yesterday briefly. You've been going through a crazy, you know, work schedule. And we were talking about our schedule for how we're going to cover Miami through digital print and some podcasting. But you found the news, I think, same time as I did. I was watching something on TV. And then this, uh, it was a pretty intense movie. And I have a bad habit of checking my phone. Don't ask me why. A lot of people do that. And I even got yelled at, you know, we are going through an intense movie. Why you pick up the phone? And then I couldn't put the phone down. I saw Ash Party retired. And I think within 90 seconds of that, you pinged me that, uh, how about we do a podcast? So my point is, this is one of those moments, right? One, she's so loved, so respected by the peers, by the fans, by the total community, that this is one of those moments, Matt, everybody would remember what they were doing because this is just so much against the grain, right? So much against the curve. Like we talk about perfect endings in sport. Like, you know, someone argued there are no perfect endings. An athlete can go anytime they wish. You don't have to win the last match, like Sampras or Jordan. But there's an idea of perfect ending. But Sampras and Jordan, you know, like both were in the absolute twilight. You know, of course, at the last dance, we saw that Jordan wanted to play if this right contract was available. He could have won at least one or two more. or could have been a factor. But that was still would count as a twilight year for Michael Jordan and same for Pete Sampras. He took a good four months time and then retired in the, uh, at, the at the onset of Australian Open 2003 But Ash Barty, right? The most dominant player ranked what, 120 weeks at number one, the most versatile players. And that's probably the biggest understatement in tennis these days, how tennis is with multi-surfaces and one-dimensional. She brings like, you know, she brought the magic. She brought the area of different play style and, you know, she had won all but three majors And uh, so many ideas, you know, so many thoughts come to my mind, like, you know, before Iga Shriantek's win in uh, Indian Wells, she's another person who attracts a lot of uh, similarities, like in terms of complete game, who's improving. So everybody was mouthwatering, mouthwatered by the opportunity of seeing these two play Naomi Osaka play. And there's so much talent in WTA right now. And Ash was leading the pack and then she just decides to call time. But the best thing is she did it on her own terms. There's, there's no depression, there's no injury related like some of the other athletes that we'll bring up in this podcast, tennis athletes, who did that uh, kind of a walkaway act uh, when the age was on their side. But, you know, they were either worn out mentally and uh, emotionally, there was, you know, fatigue set in and then there were injuries like Martina Hingis. But yeah, Ash Barty, I mean, there was so much left uh, for the consumer to consume. And it's fair to say, like, we, we don't want to speculate, but it's fair to say she had at least three or four majors in her, if not more. But then a lot, lot of people are saying she did retire as a teenager, uh, you know, sorted out issues, played some cricket, came back uh, on the tour. So who knows, this could be another comeback down the road because she definitely has age on her side. Kim Clijsters had done this, but this moment belongs to Ash Barty. I think we should celebrate the kind of tennis she played and the kind of memory she left and the kind of, uh, inspirational act she was across the players on both toes. She's a very, very well-respected player. So we wish her all the best. But this podcast is just to reminisce her achievements. So what does what what comes to your mind in terms of comparisons, you know, when we talk about this kind of an exit, when she had so much to write uh, about the game and her history, and then she walks away with her head held high and, you know, act uh, current champion at Wimbledon, current champion in Australia.
0: This is just ridiculous even to think like she walked away all right so let's get into the meat of this conversation sake but uh, two obvious comparisons that we have to explore one is bjorn borg and the other is justine enna i mean th- those are the two really prominent examples which come to mind so uh for those who are listening uh, i wrote a piece at, at australia's stats insider uh on on Barty and and making the comparison with borg so i invite you to read that to read everything that, that uh, Stats Insiders is putting out. But so since I've written a piece, uh, I want to get your thoughts on the Borg angle. So obviously some evident similarities, but also some very striking and significant differences that are worth talking about here.
1: Yeah, I think the first obvious similarity is that Borg was one of the two or three best players at the time. It's before your and my time, but anyone who follows the sport knows what beyond Borg meant to the tour like he was an absolute superstar i think before the ascents of the boris beckers Andre agassiz and the big three he was a true superstar globally one can argue he transcended the sport so when he walked away uh, i think uh, we have a little thread me and matt if you follow us on twitter so skip schwartzman murder tunga and richard evans have all weighed in there so basically at 26 borg was feeling the grind of the tour and you know And that also puts, you know, the the Federer, Nadal and Djokovic, you know, extended run into perspective how these men love to travel and compete because tennis is just not an easy place. It's a global sport. So Borg requested the ATP or the powers to be back then that he wanted like uh, to stop and have a cut down schedule as a top player. And they didn't buy it. They wanted him to. he was a cash cow. They wanted him, you know, maximized play in most tournaments. And then they thought it was just like a, a fake threat and he walked away. But then there there are layers to it. Barty's 25, Borg, I think, was 26 or 27. But uh, Barty did miss two teenage years and played cricket. But Borg was the factor. He was a phenom. He kept winning. He had, what, 11 majors, 70-odd titles, years at number one. And we all know how physically demanding and mentally demanding the sport is. He had the rare distinction of winning uh, fast, low, bouncing, grass at Wimbledon, at French Open. He did that feat more than a few times in the span of two to three weeks. So you can say that, right? Borg had... Borg had his share of tennis and people would retire like close to 28, 29, you know, Becker comes to mind and, you know, tennis players didn't have this kind of a shelf life, what uh, post-Andre Agassi we've had. And now big three are just taking it to a whole different level. So I think Borg is a fair comparison in terms of achievements. But like I said, there are layers to it. Bardi seemed more at peace. Of course, more will come out of the story. What triggered this? But she seemed happy. She seemed in a good place. Borg seemed worn out. But I think your comparison is absolutely valid. You know, he was one of the few best players in the world. I think his last match was a US Open final when he was so disappointed and just walked off the ceremony and never came back. And then Mert said in his uh, Twitter post that he kept training. He was in shape, but he wanted like some leniency from ATP in terms of, uh, you know, if they can accommodate his request to come back. And there's a brilliant book by I think Eugene Scott that's kind of an old book about the times of Borg. So I would suggest people... Uh, you know, trying to get hold of it if you want to learn more about Borg. Matt also shared a great article from SI uh, Sport Illustrated back in 91. So there's a lot of literature on Borg. But Matt, you're right. I mean, Borg and Bardi, the as much as the comparisons are obvious, the paths and the trajectories are quite different what they were at that age when they made this decision. So I'll throw the ball back at you. I mean, do you want to compare... Uh, another name you want to throw in there is Martina Hingis. And you were quick to point out and rightfully that Hingis, even though she had 209 weeks at number one, when she retired as a 22 year old, uh, she had injury and, you know, health concerns. It was not, she was at the top of the game, like Ash party.
0: Yeah. I mean, so let's remember that Martina Hingis was, you know, fighting an uphill battle. I mean, she, you know, she dominated in 1997, but as soon as the Williams sisters, began to really find their footing. And you also saw the rise of Lindsay Davenport in at the very end of the 1990s. You still had Steffi Groff, and many people will say that the 1999 Roland Garros final, uh, what was a very significant match in terms of shaping Martina Hingis' outlook, uh, you know, that, that is uh, going to be a constant point of conversation whenever Martina Hingis's career is revisited. Um, but, you know, with the Williams sisters, uh, you know, finding their fully realized selves as tennis players, um, it, it became a very physical battle. You know, this was when Mary Carrillo coined the term Big Babe Tennis. Uh, you, you saw this immense baseline hitting. And here was Hingis, you know, kind of kind of a kindred spirit as a tennis player, not so much a person, but a tennis player relative to Ash Barty in terms of her stylings, in terms of her variety and versatility. And she was going against all of these, uh, you know, rocket launcher players. You could just hit, crush the ball from the baseline. Uh, You know, this was a a very attritional sport. Women's tennis was beginning to become a lot more intense in in that way. Uh, And, uh, you know, and so in the face of that, the physical punishment, uh, that Hingis faced the the toll it took on her feet uh you know the, that that's that was really her, the injury uh that forced her to step away from the sport before she then you know later came back and reinvented herself as a double specialist, but like it, the, just the physical toll and what this game was going to require of Hingis being uh so much more physically slight or modest compared to the physicality. Uh, that the Williams sisters brought, and of course, just for people listening, this does not uh, directly state or imply that the Williams sisters, you know, lacked court craft. I, I would, would hasten to say that you know their court craft, their their understanding of of tennis, their tennis IQ was immense. But nevertheless, the Williams sisters were extraordinarily imposing athletes. I mean, that's meant completely as a compliment. There's no underlying hint of Negativity or diminishing their intelligence as tennis players. I want, want to be very clear about that. But nevertheless, it was an extreme physical test for Hingis uh, doing what she did. And that that is a central part of her story in stepping away from the game. So with Barty, just to draw the comparison, Barty, you know, is ruling the roost. She's, she's the queen of the kingdom uh, r- right now and is stepping away, you know, in a context much different from what Hingis faced with the Williamses, with Davenport, with Jennifer Capriati, and all those very big hitters who all won their share of major uh, titles in in the time when Hingis stepped down. It's a very different context.
1: It's kind of poignant what you said, so I'll just do a deeper dive, right? And you said big babe tennis, you know, came at the threshold, or was just beginning when Hingis, still a very young player. You know, uh, Hingis was right after Monica Sellers and Steffi Graf generation. And then, uh, you know, Serena, Lindsay Davenport, and Venus coming into their own. So do you see a similar trajectory here with Ash Barty? I mean, where does Ash, how do you even classify Ash Barty? If, you know, the Maria Sharapova uh, uh, big babe tennis has also, you know, there are a lot of prototypes of players who play that kind of style. With Ash Barty's variety, you think he was uh, some, somewhat similar to Hingis in Codecraft and how she constructed her tennis? Or was she an outlier, how tennis is played today?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, they, they both stood out in their respective eras, right? Because you know, they, both, they both knew that they had to play the game a different way, that they didn't have the, the size or the height uh, or, you know, or the reach. Uh, that would enable them to do, you know, what Venus and Serena, for example, could do on a court. I mean, when, when you think of the prime of, of both Venus and Serena, you know, their long strides, their long reach. You know, they were able to not only get to balls, but get send them back with interest, to send them back with pace. Uh, you know, the combination of, of, of quickness, but also length, you know, le- length and size often. Get uh, confused for being the same thing, and you know I've been covering college basketball as you briefly alluded to. So size, you know, is just is is height, Uh, but length, you know, means the reach of your limbs, uh, both the stride of your legs and and the reach of your arms, uh, which enables you to cover territory, you know, both laterally and vertically, uh, you know, more easily than someone who is is just physically smaller in stature. Uh, so, you know, the, the Williamses and Davenport, I mean, the Williamses and Davenport, they both had length, but the Williamses had more uh, quickness to the ball. Uh, and so, you know, that uh, just you're able to recover in points more quickly when you have that length, when you have that reach that just enables you to run down balls and then reach for balls uh, just more easily in, in a more replicable Uh, manner so Barty not possessing those physical attributes to the same extent I mean she like Hingis but understood that hey she had a toolbox of skills that other people didn't have and developing that toolbox was her best weapon it was her best way to be competitive and one thing we often talk about in tennis soccer is that uh, finding the right way to win a point. It's not just a matter of making the other person run because some players enjoy running. Some players enjoy running to the ball, especially when they're just in that comfortable side to side lateral movement group. Uh, David Ferrer, you know, and Nikolai Davidenko would would certainly qualify as representative examples here. Uh, Sometimes it's not about making the other person run. It's about making the other person bend. It's about making the other person come forward and go north-south within the court as opposed to the natural east-west, you know, just a lot right behind the baseline style. So if you make a person bend for a short ball, for a slice, uh, if you make a person run up into the court, you can put them in more, far more uncomfortable positions than when you're just making them run side to side. So it's easy to think, well, just hit the ball to the open corner. Well, but if that person's really fast and enjoys running, enjoys hitting on the run, well, you don't want to do that. You want to then hit the ball short. You want to hit the ball uh, with a, a different level of pace or spin. That is what will confuse the opponent. That is what will make the opponent rethink how to play. And as soon as that hesitation comes into play, that's when you've got uh, – that's that's when you can really pounce on the opponent. So Ash Barty, like Hingis 20 years before – understood that that core element of tennis, that it's not just about making the opponent run, it's about making the opponent just reconsider all the angles of the court and hitting shots that that opponent is not uh, comfortable hitting or doesn't hit very frequently. And that's a way to win a tennis point. So that, that versatility um, it, it, it is, is central to Ash Barty's success and of course we've we've made this point before but it's certainly worth making again on the occasion of her retirement barty's a lot like roger federer in that she had a lot of shots like she knew she had many different shots in her bag but it was all about understanding when and how to use them how to how to combine them how to mix them how to you know uh author that series of patterns uh the series of combinations uh, that could fundamentally and consistently get opponents off balance. So, you, like, if if Barty did not have that, she couldn't trade howitzers with you know the other formidable hitters on tour. I mean, she could. She certainly has a potent forehand, but uh, just trading you know full speed ground strokes relentlessly—that that's obviously not a winning formula. It's getting that mixture of slice of pace of spin so that you elicit a weaker shot from an opponent who doesn't know how to handle the, that variety and then you you hit the potent forehand when the opponent is in that position of of vulnerability so it's all part of that larger formula which is central to ash barty's success i think quite uh, well
1: put there and uh, you know barty's uh, game and especially the variety we're all you know, became huge fans and huge admirers. Hopefully, the door does stay open in the future. She's still very young, and like uh, some uh, speculation on Twitter, uh, she does come back on her own terms. Uh, and you asked me a question about Hannah. I think that's the more appropriate example because I was doing some fact searching. Even though Hannah's gone for like 14 years, she was one of my absolute favorite players. She was very similar to Barty after a dominant 2006 and 7, where she played. I think seven slams and reached six finals, won three of them. And there's one semifinal appearance at Wimbledon. She was clearly the best player. And she was ranked number one when she retired in 2008, came coming back on the heels of an absolute dominant 2007. But she had injuries unlike Ash Party, But that news also shook the tennis world when Justine Anna was, you know, was the best player in the world. Of course, she had a tough time in 2008. You know, there was some Uh, you know, lopsided losses, which were not true, but they could be associated with injury because she wasn't able to train the way she would. So I think that's a more similar comparison. Uh, If you ask me in tennis, and I think you you flagged that, so that's pretty accurate. Hingis and Borg deserve their mention like we did that. Uh, Since a lot of our audience here also follows other sports and, you know, there's a lot of cricket overlap, uh, the the name that comes to mind is... uh, a supremely talented South African batsman, AB de Villiers, when he retired for the first time, he had a couple of retirements too. So he was absolutely the best batsman, doing great job in across uh, multi-formats of cricket. And there were a lot of people asking why. So he also walked away, but then came back and still played for a couple more years. And these things do happen. So, Matt, that brings me to a very important question. And I know you cover other sports, and especially you know tennis is one of your favorite sports you cover. So, you know, we live in an era where Serena Williams, Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, Rafa Nadal, they're pushing not only each other's limits, but they're also pushing, you know, the slam count, the level of sustainability. It's such a mental sport. They keep overcoming the international travel, the fatigue, and still be able to, you know, perform wonders in the career that's spending more than two decades for Roger and Serena. And Novak and Rafa, you know, don't seem to slow down either. They have like a few years they're five years younger than these guys, five or six years in Djokovic's case, but the point stands. So as a sports writer, does this fascinate you how wired we are, like how how differently we are wired, right? There's a champion who keeps pushing into his 40th birthday, wants to have surgery. Roger Ferris coming back. Serena is still trying to figure out a way to win the next one. Nadal's coming from a surgery, wins Australian Open. Djokovic is ready, right, to go. And then Barty walks away at three. So people are different, right? Right. Um, Not not to insinuate that she would have won like, you know, 15 or 16 majors, but she had a lot left to offer. And you feel bad for Australian fans because they had a home drought broken after decades and Bardy was a good bet to win a couple more of those titles and now she's gone. But what does it say of the psyche, human psyche, how different people are, right? She prioritized something else, like Matt Phillips said, nothing left to prove, won three majors on her own terms, played dominant tennis, and okay, I'm ready for the next thing.
0: Yeah, you know, so you know when we think about the the goals that Ash Barty set to accomplish in her tennis career, what were, I mean, what were the two the, the main goals? One was to win Wimbledon and follow Ivan Goolagong, so she checked that box. Then winning her home nation major, the Australian Open, you know, which you know Sam she watched Sam Stoser struggle for a decade and a half, you know, have being a major champion but not being able to cross that last threshold. So to be able to deliver that to Australia, another just major life goal achieved. So when you've achieved two central and massive goals, well, so the idea of, whoa, I'm I, winning it again. I mean, now, obviously that would be great and cool and wonderful, but like when you've done it, I mean, when you've tasted it, you know, the, the, the idea of having to taste it again, having to do it again. We obviously celebrate the great, you know, champions marked by their longevity who do keep proving themselves over and over and over again. But, you know, Barty did reach these mountaintops. And so having done that, like what really what was left to prove? And uh, it's, it's, a, it's really a fair point from her uh, perspective. And I think in all of this, we have to appreciate the role that the pandemic has played you know, because Barty had to live out of a hotel and a suitcase in 2021. And she won Wimbledon, you know, living this nomadic life on the road without going home to Australia, you know, where she enjoys being. And, you know, she didn't uh, pursue the year-end championships in Guadalajara. Uh, She didn't pursue Indian Wells in October. You know, after the U.S. Open, she shut down her year. She wanted to rest. She wanted to go home. She wanted to sleep in her own bed. And look at how mentally refreshed she was having had those extra months at home. You know, then, then at the Australian Open, she, she was she was easily the most refreshed player uh, as, as she rolled through the field. And let's also remember that, you know, Barty took other breaks like she didn't pursue the uh, 2020 U.S. Open. In the pandemic, she didn't, uh, you know, uh, completely adjust her life to play tennis in 2020 when the pandemic hit. She was content to sit back, uh, you know, let the rest of the tour, uh, you know, compete for those titles. And then she was ready for that nomadic life in 2021. So Barty, you know, and who, of course, stepped away from tennis a first time. She has shown us at several points along the road, along uh, the path, that she's been willing to step back and take a break, and not have to pursue the next tournament, the next paycheck, quite so relentlessly. And this is something that I've, you know, made note of before, uh, you know, well before uh, the pandemic began. You know, let's remember that Marin Chilich, now his, his, you know, his break from tennis was because of a suspension. So it wasn't chosen. Nevertheless, Saka, we remember that after his extended several-month layoff, that's when he won his major at the 2014 U.S. Open. And we know that Rafael Nadal, after several prolonged injury-related layoffs, has come back and played some of the best tennis of his career. When he won the uh, Cincinnati-Canada U.S. Open triple, in 2013, it was after an extended injury layoff, and so I've I've made note uh, even before our podcast started. socket I've you know, said on Twitter to people who would listen that for people who felt ground down by the tour, taking a six or seventh month break. Look at Roger Federer at the end of 2016, leading into his great uh, resurrection year of 2017. Also an example of how taking several months away, coming back refreshed, this is something athletes ought to do if they want to win more major titles and more big tournaments. It's something Kei Nishikori uh, could have considered. It's something Milos Raonic could have considered. Um, And so Barty always had this awareness of the rejuvenating power of taking several months off. And you know when you're when you've won several tournaments, when you've been world number one, you're making the kind of money that that you know puts you in a comfortable position. And so part of Barty's story here, Sakib, is that with you know life changing money already in the bank, she's using the freedom that money affords to make these different choices. So so you know you and I, we we don't have that life changing money, or at least. <laughs> I certainly don't. So like I have to keep working to pay the bills around the house. So to that extent, like I I can't choose to retire from sports riding um, the way Barty could choose to retire from tennis. But that should not diminish in any way the reality that Barty did have the freedom to choose and made this very different choice. And, you know, when we when we die, we're not going to be judged You know, if we do believe in a God. We're not going to be judged by oh did you win more major titles like that's you know that in, in terms of measuring a life not a career but a life we're going to be asked by you know how we treated other people what we did for, what we did for others what we did for our community what we did for the planet uh, you know did we live with uh, inner integrity and this this decision by Ash Barty reveals inner integrity it doesn't mean that playing continuing to play would have been wrong it just means this is authentic. And that's really why Ash Barty is so respected by her colleagues on tour, because they see in her an authentic person following her unique path. You know, it's it's her life. It's only she can can, uh, you know, create her own story. And they see that genuineness uh, in Barty. And, and it's why it's why she's so respected. So it's all part of that larger picture uh, that she is uh, is creating for us uh, to see uh, and appreciate.
1: You're right. I think life is complex and uh, and we are all different. We are different walks of life. And yes, I, I'm in the same boat as you. I don't see any time stopping working anytime soon. So, yeah, but you're, you're right. You know, like, uh, so, so athletes, we can at least, uh, if we can uh, narrow it down to just uh, athlete's life, than generic life, we can still have, you know, a, a good, you know, somewhat of a debate. And you're right without Ash Barty, she did seem content. She did it on her own terms. And we see a lot of careers like, and people are different, right? So we always talk about Marat Safin. We always talk about Nick Kyrgios. Only if these guys could do it. You know, I'm just try- trying to take it in a different way, but this conversation, but these guys are wired differently. I saw, you know, from the Safin years, uh, he was one of the big what-if uh, players of his generation. He went two slams, but a lot of people believe he had more in him, but he used to get mad when people would compare him with Federer. He said, look, I'm not as good as Federer. Don't insult me by saying I don't work hard. This is why, this is how I play tennis. This is my limit and I'm going to, and then he retired at 828 or 29. He was gone. And same thing with Nick Kyrgios, who uh, for different reasons, you know, again, a complex figure to like, you know, take a deep dive into, contradicts himself and uh, some days shows up as like last year out of shape. This year looks much leaner, but all openly says, I'm not going to win majors because that's something, you know, uh, too much to ask with my lifestyle and ashwadi i think kind of proves the spectrum of it like how different athletes uh, embrace pressure embrace the game and just it's their profession she felt you know she achieved whatever she needed to and now you know there's another road she's gonna take and she's gonna go out on a high like all of us will talk about the biggest what if in the women's game how if she had stayed how many wimbledon she would have won how many more tournaments she would have won but uh life does go on. And uh, you're quite right. I mean, uh, you know, there are two ways to judge, you know, one, the bigger one is to judge a person, how they led his or her life. And then, uh, and then to judge a legacy of a career, how she played, and she gets full marks and uh, she's very well respected. You know, I remember a quote uh, which was similar to Stefan Edberg when he retired. I think it was Jim Courier who said that from next year on, at Wimbledon, it won't be gentlemen single. It'll be men single because the only gentlemen we had just retired, you know? So that was uh, something that stayed with me. Uh, before we wrap this up, uh, Matt, I mean, on the larger point of view from a tennis writer, if you feel you got a little bit robbed of time, what were the matchups you were wishing to cover with Ash Barty as a participant? What did you, you know, what was your wish list look like with the rivalry that were at stake in the WTA because I remember a podcast Yumi and Mert did and Mert said the women's tennis is in great hands. And if only Andreescu, Iga Swiatek, Bardi, and Osaka can live up to the hype, this could be a new chapter. We could have a new big four on the women's side. So if you remember the conversation and what are your closing thoughts on, you know, what could have been had Bardi decided to play tennis,
0: continue to well, play tennis? Sure. Uh, 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 let me address that. But I want to say a, a few more words about Justine Enna just to kind of fully explore uh, that particular comparison. I, I And I will I will get to that uh, that Barty question. Uh, you know, the thing about Justine Enna when she uh, set down her tennis career, a couple things. One is that, you know, she had just gone through a divorce. You know, we remember that she was Justine Enna Hardan for a few years. Uh, and then you know ha- had that divorce, so like that that was a significant uh element in her personal life that she was trying to sort through uh as as part of stepping away uh from the game now of course you know she she then um you know played uh serena williams in the uh in the, uh, that Australian open final a little bit later you know she she also had that you know leave the sport, come back to the sport, but like she was going through some things in her personal life. Uh, and, and the other thing is that in the, in the late 2000s, you know, Anna had a period of initial ascendancy in, uh, 2003 and 2004, then, you know, had to, then there, you know, there was plenty of competition that, that rose up in the intervening years, you know, in 2006, uh, you know, she was in each of the four major finals, but couldn't win Wimbledon and uh she she fell short at wimbledon uh a number of times so she didn't chase down that particular career goal and and in the in the late 2000s she was not easily at the top of her sport the way barty so clearly has been uh and borg similarly when he walked away you know he, he officially retired in, in january of 83 but you know he he his tennis calendar was greatly diminished and minimized in 1982. In early 1982, coming off the, the 1981 U.S. Open final against uh, John McEnroe, Borg was still a top two player in the world. And it was Borg, McEnroe, and Connors, clearly the top three players in the world. When when Enna uh, walked away in the late 2000s, the, the landscape wasn't quite as clear for her. I mean, she was certainly... Uh, in the top tier but I don't think that the power structure was quite as defined in her favor as it was for Borg uh, in the early 1980s or as it is for Barty certainly uh, right now so I think those are some of the nuances when we make a comparison between Barty and Enna uh, in, in terms of uh, where they stood uh, in the larger scheme of things in tennis the fact that Enna had a, a rise in 0304 then went down then went back up in 2007 uh, you know so she had made two climbs whereas Barty made one fundamental climb didn't really have any regression uh that that those are some differences to make between Barty and Anna I wanted to make sure to get that on on the podcast so now to your to your question you know so last year what were we talking about we were talking about Barty and Osaka at the majors, or at least at the hard court majors, because Osaka struggles on grass and clay. So we were hoping for a, a, a clash at the U.S. Open. Then, of course, this year, the Australian Open, the, the, they, you know Osaka and Barty were in the same section. They could have met in the fourth round, but Anisimova took out Osaka, so we didn't get that particular matchup. We saw Iga Sviantek make a major semifinal on hard courts, not clay, uh, in Melbourne, and then, of course, she just one, Indian Wells, so so certainly the hope for a big Barty sviantec battle, either at Rowan Garros or Wimbledon, loomed as a very distinct possibility. You know, Bardi didn't win Rowan Garros last year, didn't advance deep in the tournament, but it wasn't because of a lack of quality. She was hurt. She got hurt in Rome. She was suffering various different injuries, and she somehow powered through all of that to win Wimbledon uh, while, you know, being less than 100% uh, physically. So having a fully fit Barty, having this informed Shvion tech, it certainly led to the tantalizing possibility that they would meet and that they wouldn't just meet at a major, they would meet in a major final. Uh, They were certainly in position to do that as one versus two. That was the big blockbuster that I was thinking about when I, you know, no, noted that Schiavone won Indian Wells. I mean, I wasn't able to cover this for tennis with an accent, but certainly watching with great admiration, tech, uh lost the first set in several matches and fought back. We can call her Iga three on tech, you know, given all the three setters uh, that she's won. So it was Barty Osaka last year. It was Barty Schiavone this year. Who knows what it might have been next year? Uh, if another player, maybe Paula Bedosa, maybe Maria Sakkari, uh, had risen to the top, but you know, so Barty against any of these other top-tier WTA players, there were many options on the table uh, for a big rivalry. And now, Saka, my final point, and definitely something that all of us should be thinking about: Will Naomi Osaka retire from tennis? Very relevant question, and I think a very realistic possibility because we've seen Naomi Osaka very publicly wrestle with the strain and the stress of not just going through life on tour, but dealing with the media, dealing with you know her own uh, confidence and, and how she visualizes herself and thinks of herself. I mean, it's been a real battle and people will have their various opinions on Osaka and and how authentic her struggle is what really matters is, you know, just as Bar- as it matters, what Barty feels like she feels fulfilled. And that's what should matter most, that the athlete feels at peace with her decisions and whatever she does, whatever she uh, whatever path she decides to follow. That's what matters with Osaka. Does she feel at peace? Does she feel whole? Does she feel nourished? And I'm not saying she's going to, but just, you know, Osaka watching Ash Barty step away like this. Osaka has life-changing money. She has, you know, the ability to do different things if she wants to. You know, maybe she will be like a, a, a UNICEF or um some other international goodwill ambassador. Uh could certainly raise a lot of money, you know, for international relief if that is something she wants to do. Again, I'm not predicting it, but I'm sure that Naomi Osaka is thinking very deeply about what ash barty has just done and that is that is, that is something i am utterly fascinated about and it's going to be very interesting to see um not only what ash barty does with this new chapter of her life but what naomi osaka does whether it's on the tennis court or off that is, that is a very big story that uh, i'm going to be monitoring for the rest of 2022
1: and it's a powerful thought to end this man. And you would kind of read my mind. I had this as a potential question, but I was also skeptical. I don't want to throw something out like that out there, but I'm, I guess I'm not alone. You, me, and a lot of us are thinking, "What is Osaka gonna do?" Because if we not too long ago, we like you said, we were talking double digit majors for Osaka, and that still can happen. It's still very odd to see a seventy-something ranking associated with her name, but uh, she's definitely, you know, trying to figure out a few things and. Uh, uh and i don't, i don't know how to even say this you know like uh, uh, issues bigger than tennis you know have her attention and you're right she could she could definitely do some goodwill ambassador kind of a role or she could uh do more uh important stuff than tennis because you know her, her heart's in the right place i think and uh she's bothered by a few things that sometimes we tend to look away and good for her and it'll be a huge blow to tennis if if we even come to come close to losing osaka so i hope you know Osaka, uh, you know, still is around tennis. Uh, she's a, she's going to be a force to deal with, regardless. She's the greatest, uh, one of the greatest movers, if not the greatest mover on tour right now. So I hope, uh, and a lot of fans do the same that she figures out, you know, what her best tennis plan is. Because I think once she's firing on all cylinders, I think she still uh, can 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 be the world's best. But we'll definitely miss Ash Barty. You know, not a podcast I was planning to do. I know you still have some basketball. Uh, Coverage to write and close about. We'll be doing more uh, work during the Miami Open. It started already, but I think come weekend, Matt will hopefully have some write write ups, and we might even do a couple of couple of Twitter Spaces during uh, during the eleven day tournament. But yeah, thank you for listening, and we'll be we'll be back with more content. This is Sakib and Matt signing off. And uh, yeah, when we drop this podcast, if you want to share your favorite Ashwadi moment on Twitter. We would like to know and uh, we'll be back with another episode in a week's time thank you everyone bye for now